When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today on The Joseph Carlson Show, the stock market continues its decline. It's now down 3.67% for the S&P 500 over the past five days. The QQQ is down 6.25% over the same time period. The Fair and Greed Index, which is a rough estimate of investor sentiment, now is at a 13, which is in the extreme fair category. Investors are becoming increasingly concerned, and for good reason. Bill Ackman recently did a tweet storm of how we're already in World War III. Oil's now at 128, the highest that it's been since 2008. And President Biden says that he's going to ban Russian oil imports. So we have a lot of crazy news going on in the market right now. We also have this popular graphic being shared around all of social media. The surge in energy prices suggest high probability of a recession. And the graphic shows that every time oil prices have gone up 50%, which they just now have, that has quickly preceded a recession. So I'll give you my thoughts on this and if I think this is a true indicator of a recession. Now we also have some other news that Disney Plus is going to launch a cheaper ad-supported tier later this year to their service. And I want to go through the benefits and the potential downside of Disney Plus having an ad version of their service. So as always, we have a lot to jump into in this episode, a lot of ground to cover. If you like this type of content, you can subscribe to the channel and follow along with my progress for free. You can also check out the Patreon. You get access to a Discord community, exclusive content, and of course the Qualtrum software suite, which gives you the Dip Finder, as well as Qualtrum Insights and dividend tracking software. That's all included under the Patreon. All right, now let's go ahead and start off looking at the market overall. Year to date, the S&P 500 is down 13%, so it's well into correction territory, headed towards the bear market. The QQQ is down 20% year to date, and it's well into a bear market overall. So both of those major indices are in a correction or a bear market, and the Dow Jones, the last of the three, has entered into correction territory as well. So all of these are headed down. Across the board, stocks are going down. And it's clear to me that investors are becoming increasingly fearful. The Fear and Greed Index on CNN now shows that investors are in the extreme fear category, And I think this is mostly accurate. From what I see, investors are incredibly fearful. No longer are investors talking about the story of companies, their total addressable markets. They're not talking about the future vision and growth of the companies. They're now just looking for places to not lose money. That's basically what every investor is doing right now. They're not looking at the growth plans. They're looking at the defensiveness of every company they own. Is it going to be sold off more tomorrow? That's the biggest concern. Now, if we look at this gauge in historical context, I actually think it's pretty accurate. The Fear and Greed Index showed that investors were extremely greedy leading up to March of 2020. So going into that time period, I remember that being the case. I made videos sarcastically saying that the stock market is this magical money-making machine where you can buy any company and it will go up in price the next day. And that's exactly what was happening in late 2019 and early 2020. Then, of course, the 2020 pandemic happened. Sentiment quickly shifted from extreme greed all the way to extreme fear during March of 2020. 
That's the point where this gauge got all the way to the worst reading in Extreme Fair. Now after this point, the gauge has shifted back and forth somewhere between the two in its normal radius, but now it's starting to shift way back down into that Extreme Fair category. My guess is this is going to continue. With all the events unfolding right now, I can see this gauge going all the way back down to the very bottom of Extreme Fair. So that's the situation we're working with here. We know that the QQQ, the S&P 500, and even the Dow Jones are all selling off. All of them are now in correction territory, and the QQQ is in a full-on bear market. And it looks like it may continue on this way unless we get some really good news. We can see this with our portfolios as well. My portfolio over the past one-week period is down 3.25%. So it's holding up a little bit better than the market, better than the S&P 500, but I'm still down $11,100. That's $11,000 in one week gone. Then if we look at the past month, I'm down 7%. That's $25,600 gone. Then if we look at the past one quarter, the past 90 days, I'm down $42,000. $42,000 gone in a three-month period. So this has affected my portfolio like crazy. Looking overall, I used to be at gains of $80,000 three months ago. Now I'm at gains of $37,000. And if this selling continues, if the broad market selling across the board indiscriminately continues on, my portfolio is eventually going to go all the way back into the red. I have a little bit of buffer room right now. I'm still up $37,000. But if we go down another 12 or 13%, we could see my portfolio go back into the red overall. Now, this can be a little depressing to say the least. To see your gains vanish away in just the order of a couple of months, to see this much loss over just this time period, I think is very difficult to deal with for a lot of investors. I'm getting a lot of questions from different investors, different people that are part of the community here that are asking me questions like, look, I invested in companies that I thought were good value. They're great companies but they're all being sold off. I'm in the red on almost every single one of them. What do I do in this situation? And I think that's the most important question. What do we do in this situation? Now to answer this question, I've gone through and outlined what I think are the most objective and reasonable options we have available to us. These are the different things we can do with our money and our investments. The first thing is we could look at growth stocks. These are the companies that have been beaten down already quite a bit. Growth stocks are a category of companies that are growing their revenue faster than other companies. So if their top line revenue growth is above 10 or 15%, that's probably in the growth stock category. If it's slower than 10%, it's probably no longer a growth stock. So these companies are valued based on their future growth, not really their earnings or their profitability. And the problem with growth stocks right now is that interest rates rising make these companies less valuable. So they get further and further discounted. And knowing that the Fed's going to increase interest rates in the future makes it so that the multiples these companies trade at is continually contracting. As the multiples come down, the price comes down. So even though growth stocks have been hit a lot already, they've came down in prices, the multiple contraction may continue and they might continue to come down in price. Now, of course, we could look at the other group of companies, the value stocks. These are companies that aren't growing their top line revenue as fast as growth stocks. So they might grow at less than 10% per year, but they do have higher amounts of earnings and they have higher free cash flow. That's typically what defines a value stock. Now, value stocks have done better than growth stocks for the past six months, but the valuations of these defensive value stocks 
has actually gotten quite high. If you look at the valuation of most of these companies, it's the highest they've been in the past five years. So a lot of the future prospects and defensiveness of these companies has already been largely priced in. And if you pile money into them now, you might risk those multiples contracting like growth stocks in the future. Now, outside of these general group of companies, we have the specific group of commodities. This is the hottest trade right now. This is what every trader is doing. They're piling money into commodities. And you can see this reflected in the share prices. ExxonMobil, for example, is the highest price that it's been for the past five years. In just the past 30 days, it's up 13% while the rest of the market's tanking. And you can see the same thing with Chevron. It's the highest price it's been in the past five years. The price is going parabolic and there's a ton of momentum in this company. So the commodity trade right now is working out well for a lot of investors. They're making money buying ExxonMobil and Chevron. The issue I have with this trade is that there's a lot of day traders in it. There's a lot of momentum investors in it, not just long-term investors. So the prices are being pushed up like crazy right now, and eventually those momentum investors will move on to something else. And if you make the mistake of buying towards the top of the peak and momentum investors decide it's time to move on, you could be hurt in this trade. Now, after commodities, we could look at bonds. Maybe that's an option, but we know that we're gonna be earning real negative returns with bonds. So we might earn 2% on a bond and actually have 5% inflation, so we're losing 3%. And of course, with cash, we just have it being eaten away by inflation. We also have the option of trying to become a market timer, selling now, exiting the market, and hoping that we can get back in at a better time. And of course, timing the market in this way, I think, is an ill-advised strategy that you're more likely to lose money by timing it incorrectly than actually timing it correctly. So overall, when I look at all the options here, none of them look great in my opinion. This is kind of a situation where you can pick your poison. You can choose different options here, you can go different routes, but I have left out one important option available to us, and that is to do nothing. Do nothing may in fact be the best option. If we go back to Terry Smith's investment letter, he summarizes his strategy in three different steps. Buy good companies, don't overpay, and the third one, which he intentionally leaves in as part of the three steps, is to do nothing. And I think this is the one that investors really struggle the most with. They're good at buying companies, and I think a lot of investors are even good at not overpaying. They look at valuations, they look at P.E. ratios and price to sales and try to determine a good value for the company, but they struggle the most with the step of doing nothing. Sitting on your hands and doing nothing while watching gains vanish away is incredibly difficult and that can't be understated. This is probably the most difficult part of investing. And I think this is why investors like Terry Smith have done really well, is because they're really disciplined in doing nothing. So in my portfolio, that's the strategy that I'm following. I'm not doing the latest trend. I'm not jumping from growth to value and value to growth, going into commodities, going into cash, trying to time the market, or doing all of these things that have been proven time and time again to lead to inferior returns. What I'm doing is buying good companies. In fact, I'd consider them to be great companies. I'm not overpaying for them, and then I'm sitting on my hands and patiently doing nothing. And that third step is very difficult. The pendulum swings from that greed to fear all the time, and I plan on waiting until investors become bullish again on this market, because this isn't going to be the end of it. The market isn't always going to be in extreme fear mode. Eventually, at some point, it'll move all the way back up to extreme greed. That will happen again eventually. And that's the time when you should be taking gains and selling out of positions, not when investors are incredibly fearful. So while this may not be the most exciting strategy that comes with the most drama, I think it's the best one for making money. And that's what I plan on doing in the future. 
Now, moving on, we got to jump into this news of Bill Ackman, the famous investor, now saying that we're already in World War III, we just haven't realized it yet. His reasoning for this is pretty simple. He says that even though we're not fighting Russia directly, the Ukrainians are, we're supplying them with money, we're supplying them with weapons, and we're doing harsh economic sanctions all across the world against Russia. So we're basically at war with them, even though we're not directly boots on the ground fighting them. And I think in that respect, he's probably correct, but I wouldn't really categorize this as World War III. What I have been astonished by is how unified all of the West has been in coming together and going against Russia. It's actually been pretty incredible to see. Every single major company that I track is pulling out of Russia. The latest to do it is McDonald's. McDonald's will temporarily close 850 restaurants in Russia, nearly two weeks after Putin invaded Ukraine. So even McDonald's is pulling out of Russia. You have companies like Netflix and Disney opposing Russia. You have Visa and MasterCard implementing restrictions. We have sanctions across the board that are going to further cripple the Russian economy. And the US and Europe are now saying that we're going to reduce the amount of oil that we import from Russia. So a lot of this is semantic. Is this World War III? Well, I don't really know. It depends on what you define as World War III. We're not fighting directly against Russia, but we're certainly sanctioning them, offering resources to people that are fighting them, and the unified West are doing a lot to damage their economy through the amount of companies being pulled out of Russia. And it seems like a lot of this may have been underestimated by Putin. Putin may argue that this is all going according to plan, and he had all of this baked in, this is all expected, but I think that that assumption is probably ridiculous. I think Putin did underestimate Ukraine's resistance, and I think he probably underestimated the length that the West is willing to go to punish their economy. I really don't believe that this is all going to plan for Putin. I think a lot of this has backfired. He's now resulted to just bombarding cities, trying to reduce them to rubble. They say that President Vladimir Putin could still reduce cities in Ukraine to rubble, but European countries say they are not as intimidated by Russian ground forces as they were in the past. So in the vision of all of Europe, this has actually weakened their view of the Russian ground forces. They no longer view Russia's ground forces as this unstoppable army. They now view it as something that can be defeated. So Putin, in the eyes of his enemy, has actually lowered the view and the respect that his army has by doing this war. Now, of course, this war has caused oil prices to go up, and now there's a lot of people predicting that the high price of oil will lead to a recession within the U.S. And this came about with this chart here. This chart shows all the way back to 1970, the price of oil and then highlighted in vertical gray lines, a recession. So you get to see where the price of oil is and where recession starts. And as they circle here, every time oil has gone up over 50% inflation adjusted, it has preceded a recession. Not every single recession has started this way, but every time oil prices have gone this high, it has preceded a recession. So we see that pattern six different times since 1970, and now we're in the same situation. Oil prices, inflation adjusted, have again gone up above 50%. So the concern is this might precede another recession. Now these charts are interesting to look at, but ultimately I don't think that they prove much. This doesn't mean that we have to enter into a recession. It's happened six times before, but there's a lot of times where we were just shy of that 50% mark and we didn't enter into a recession. Like just a couple of years ago, we were about 49%. So is this the perfect line that if we got 2% higher oil prices, we would have entered into a recession a couple of years ago? I don't think so. I think that this is just a rough gauge and something that we see crop up after the fact. Even the firm that put this graphic together says, quote, 
I don't expect an economic disaster, but what we're seeing in oil prices will have significant impact on growth. And I think that that's fair to say. We also have few economists say that the U.S. is in danger of recession since the economy is underpinned by strong labor market, solid consumer spending, and better than expected corporate profits. But many expect growth to slow further if inflation continues to rise. The war in Ukraine has injected further volatility into the markets just as the Federal Reserve enters the rate hike cycle. They're saying there's a lot of volatility going on right now because of all the chaos going on. So graphics like this may be interesting to look at and you might be able to get a better gauge of when a recession is going to start. But even if you were able to accurately predict exactly when a recession starts, you're still not able to predict the stock market. In many cases, the stock market doesn't trade down perfectly with the recession and back up with the recovery. A lot of times it dips down before the recession starts and it starts to recover during the recession. They're not always perfectly correlated. So trying to time this type of stuff, I still think is a losing game. Now, lastly, we have a strategy change in Disney with Disney+. Plus. So far, their service has been where you sign up and just like Netflix, you have no ads, you pay a certain amount every month, and you get access to their library of content that's constantly updated. But now Disney has decided to add in a cheaper ad-supported tier to their subscription options. So you'll be able to choose between paying more and having no ads, or paying less and having ads in the mix. Now, I have some thoughts on this and the strategy change, and I want to see if you notice the type of companies that are adding in the ad-supported tiers. Let's go ahead and read through some of them that are doing this. HBO Max last year introduced a $10 a month plan that shaved $5 off of the ad-free price. Although in addition to adding commercials, the cheaper plan also is limited to HD content, not the 4K. Peacock is another one. It takes a more varied approach. A smaller selection of content with ads is available for free with a $4.99 per month tier that offers the full library with ads. And then there's the $10 plan for Peacock that allows customers to download titles to watch offline and get rid of most but not all of the commercials. So Peacock has the most varied approach. They have three different tiers with ads and no ads and everything in between. And even Hulu, which Disney now owns and operates, offers an ad-free and advertisement-supported version. Hulu with commercials is $7 a month. The ad-free version is $13 per month. So there's a lot of streaming companies that are taking this approach of having a mixture of ads and no ads in their services. They have varied approaches in doing this and varied strategies. And the reason that they do this, of course, is because it raises that ARPU, that average revenue per user. Introducing ads increases the average revenue per user by a lot. For example, Peacock with their free tear, the completely free tear, has an average revenue per user of around $10 per month. They load you with so many ads when you're watching this that they're still making $10 per month off of you. So that's the reason they charge $10 per month for their premium version, just so that they can have the same amount of average revenue per user that they do with the free tier. And I know that Disney's looking at Peacock and saying, wow, they're getting $10 per month per user just with the ad revenue. That's so much money on a per user basis. Maybe we should allow that option as well. So Disney's following Peacock and HBO and all these other companies with this strategy. Do you notice the group of companies that have so far been unwilling to follow this ad revenue model? Netflix is one of the few companies that only offers options for streaming that don't include ads. They have no ad supported model. Another one is Apple TV+. Apple TV+, only has the option to have ad free. 
They will not include ads on their service, or at least they haven't done so so far. And the other one is Amazon Prime Video. So far, they don't have ads included in their service. The big differentiator I notice between these two groups of companies is all the ones that are embracing an ad version of their platform are all the traditional cable companies. These are all the legacy companies embracing their legacy model. Peacock is from Comcast. They're happily embracing ads. We have now even Disney, a legacy company, embracing ads with both Hulu and now Disney+. And we have HBO Max, of course, with AT&T, embracing ads on their service as well. All of them in varied forms are embracing ads. While the tech companies, the newer companies like Netflix, Amazon Prime, and Apple TV+, so far none of them are really embracing this ad model. And I think that's an important distinction to make. The reason that the average Netflix user watches for over three hours per day probably has to do with the fact that they have not embraced an ad version of their subscription. They refuse to do so. So their engagement stays incredibly high because you have no reason to disengage. You go from one episode to the next with no ad breaks in between. So overall, I think this will be a good thing for Disney in the short term. I think that in the short term, they'll have a higher average revenue per user, so Disney's going to make more money. And I also think that they're going to gain subscribers quicker having the dual options. But in the long term, I see a potential downside to this. Having an ad version of a streaming service is kind of like trying to just remake cable TV on the internet. And I don't think that's exactly what people want. And I see this actually as a potential for Netflix and Apple TV Plus and Amazon Prime to differentiate themselves from all these cable legacy companies. While they're all going into the ad-supported revenue streams, the services with Netflix and Apple TV Plus and Amazon Prime probably stand to benefit from it. So that's all for this show. I'll have more content out this weekend. So if you haven't already, hit the subscribe button and you can follow along for free.